Welcome to the City Hill podcast. We really hope you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london. So today what I'm really excited to do is to talk to you about um, the second week of our series. We started a series last week called God of the Universe. Because if you're going to talk about the notion and the idea of God, you can't shy away from the, the place that we live in, the universe. Which is funny because the universe used to mean everything, but actually it doesn't even mean that anymore. Which is a bit of a weird one, but we'll get to it. So today what we're talking about is we're talking about a discussion, something that Christopher Hitchens, one of the great atheists of the New Atheist Movement, um, said was probably the greatest argument for God. It's called the fine-tuning argument. And we're going to look a bit about the universe, but actually we're going to talk about something way more important than that towards the end. But bear with me. So last week, just to recap, we talked about the universe, stuff happening with it, and some cool facts. But then we ended up talking about quantum entanglement, which is like two particles can be entangled on different parts of the planet. You turn one, the other one turns, and just automatically without any seemingly communication between the two. And what we talked about was actually how Jesus said that he is the vine, we are the branches. He said, I do that which I see my father doing, I say that which I hear my father saying, and how we're supposed to be entangled with Christ and that connection. And so that was a really cool, fun week that we had. This week, we're looking at a bit of fine tuning. So there used to be two things that were needed for a planet to sustain life. Two things that a planet would need to have life. And what that was, was a sun similar to ours. the warmth from that here. A sun similar to ours, and we would need the planet to be a similar distance from the sun as ours. Two things, and that was it. That's what scientists used to say. Then it grew to 10 different things. Then it grew to 20. And then it made it down to 50, oh, do you want some grandma? 50 different fine-tuning situations that need to take place for a planet to sustain life. Then, about 12 years ago, which is the last thing I could find to read because I don't think anyone's writing about it anymore and I can understand why, actually. Um, it, 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 last case I had, 200 individual factors were need, needed. Actually, it got to a point when all the math was said and done, mathematically, we shouldn't exist. <laughs> when you look at the odds of a planet bearing life within the universe, technically, we shouldn't be here, but we are here. But the universe is just right for life. And the reason we know that is because we're meeting here on a Sunday morning, so we kind of know that's happened. In the 1920s, Hubble observed that the universe was expanding. In the 1990s, they freaked out the universe is expanding faster than they previously thought, which was a pretty scary thing because if, it, if the universe expanded too fast, then you lose life. If it uh, were to then collapse back in on itself, you would lose life. And it all got very confusing. And then what they realized was that the universe is just the right mass density, that it will never expand forever, nor collapse in on itself. And then they came to a new revelation, which was the universe is flat, which was, which was weird, because actually at first, it took scientists by surprise, because when it came to the idea of the universe being a random entity, it meant that it went off in, they expected it to be all erratic in all different ways. And they were like, oh, it's flat. And then they went, oh, of course it would be flat, because any random event could have any random outcome, even though it looks far more calculated than what they previously had said before, but they've moved past that, and that's pretty, pretty cool. So the thing that really got people confused was, why did the universe kind of move at such velocity, but then slow down, and then why is it kind of holding around about the same kind of positioning, that it's still expanding, but not as rapidly? And so that question came in, they needed something 
new. So gravity had always been talked about as something that attracts, something that pulls. But then Einstein, through his theory of relativity, started to talk about something different. He started to talk about gravity in a different way. He started to talk about something that not only would attract and pull, but would repel. And this is what they call dark matter, though no one actually really knows what dark matter is. Um, the reason we talk about dark matter is because we need dark matter, because actually the, the, the theories and the maths and all the things that they've created and come up with to explain life and the origins, um, the math doesn't add up. So what they've done every time the math doesn't add up is, instead of looking for a new theory, they've created a whole new basis for that theory. So the last one that we spoke about last week was we talked about string theory, which is that when things get to the very smallest level, it's just like vibrations on tiny strings. And that was brilliant, and that was fantastic. But that also caused problems when it came to understanding the entire universe and understanding what held it together and what pulled it together. And so when the math didn't add up, they started to realize, hold on a sec, according to the calculations they had, the amount of dark matter that would be needed wasn't the amount of dark matter that they believed was there. And so they were completely caught off guard by this. So then instead of scrapping it and going, you know what, we have no idea what's going on, they created a new layer beneath that, which they now have changed the meaning of the universe. So the universe would always be talked about as everywhere but here and the whole of space and everything else. Whereas now it's no longer everything, there's now the multiverse. Uh, one scientist I listened to made a really funny joke where he'd been talking to his, his daughter about the universe for a long time now and she'd grown up. And one of the things that um, he said to her, he said, I love you, honey, more than the universe. And she said, which one, the universe or the multiverse? Do you really mean everything or are you just meaning like just a small part of it now? So when they talk about it, they look at the amount of dark matter that was needed to keep the universe as it is. And the math didn't add up. So then they said you have to have all these multiverses. And in these multiverses, the different overlaying universes would sustain one another through having different amounts of dark matter and the number wouldn't need to be the same between them. And it started to get really complicated and nonsensical really, really fast uh, to the point where it felt like no one knew what they were talking about. And I have no idea what they were talking about. And it started to get really, really complicated. But whether you believe in the multiverse or look at the universe in that way, that's not all the fine tuning that's needed. We start to look at galaxies. There are galaxies all across the universe, but not any old galaxy could sustain life. It would need to be a spiral galaxy. It would be a certain size, certain age, like a fine wine or vintage. Um, it would apparently write off 90% of the galaxies in the universe. So 90% of the galaxies available in the universe could not sustain life. But if you did get one of those spiral galaxies, it has to be um, located, the sun would have to be located in a narrow region between the spiral arms. If too close to the center, it'll move too fast and be destroyed and not sustain life. Too far out, it'll be moving too slow, it'll be destroyed as well. Wow, sorry man, I nearly clotheslined you. That was a, I nearly did a WWE thing at church, man. That was like, Cheese. Um, and then it comes to not just the galaxies that we look at and the fine tuning there, but then we look at the stars. It has to be a single star. If it's a double star or a triple star or more, it couldn't sustain life, which then writes off 75% of stars that we've observed. So 90% of galaxies are out of the question, 75% of the reigning galaxies, are their stars are out of qu question. It needs to be the right size, the right mass age, not too hot, not too cold. It cannot burn erratically. If it burns erratically, once again, no one exists all over again. And then it cannot send these varying degrees of energy. And also, stars tend to um, oscillate up and down, which then means the planet would receive far too much radiation, which means, once again, it couldn't survive. Luckily for us, you can rest assured and sleep well tonight. Um, within the Milky Way, there are many um, uh, clouds, that of, of cosmic dust 
that stop us receiving radiation, so we should still be okay. We should still exist in this universe tomorrow. But it's not only just down to the galaxies, not only just down to the stars, it then comes down to the planets themselves. So the planet must be in a very narrow region around the star, not too close or it'll get sucked in and burned up, not too far away or it'll be too cold to sustain life. It has to be um, tipped on its axis roughly around 23 degrees to allow for seasons, the right climate for habitation. The gravitational pull of our planet, the Earth, is exactly right for keeping water vapor trapped, but also amazingly and precisely right for letting methane and ammonia escape from the Earth. These gases would be poisonous and kill us. Also, the Earth rotates its axis every 24 hours. This is perfect. Any slower, we would be frozen or toasted, depending on what side of the planet you were on. Any faster, and the winds would blow us away. Uh, we wouldn't be able to stand our ground. The Earth is tilted on, degree, on an axis of 23.4 degrees. This again is perfect. More tilt and the climate would go crazy. Less tilt and the amount of livable space would be very, very small. All the gases in our atmosphere, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, etc., are exactly the right proportions to sustain life. A little more oxygen and we get a fire like this and we would never be able to put it out. Just a little more oxygen on our planet and that bad boy is never going out. It doesn't matter what you do that would just keep burning. The Earth has so many what people call Goldilocks parameters, not too hot, not too cold, just right, that need to kind of take place for it to sustain life. Um, the molten core that we have, the tectonic plates, they're, ne they're necessary. The earthquakes are necessary. The correct ratio between oceans and land masses, 100% necessary for this planet to sustain life. The moon. If the moon that we had was not abnormally large for the size of a moon, or not the exact distance, we would not be here. We wouldn't exist. Jupiter, if we did not have Jupiter, thank God for Jupiter. Jupiter is this ginormous punch bag of the universe. Jupiter is so big, it pulls away. We would have a thousand times the amount of meteorites and asteroids hitting our planet if it weren't for Ju Jupiter standing in our solar system going, come at me, bro. Like literally, if Jupiter did not do that, we again, we would not be here. But then also Jupiter, and Saturn have really strong orbits that help our orbit stay in check and stay on point. If we didn't have them in the orbit that they have and they're a little bit more erratic, that's it. We're finished, we're toast again. All of that fine tuning is so that we can exist. And that is why Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, sadly he's no longer with us, said that this was by far the greatest argument for God. But as we said last week, Michio Kaku, the leading physicist of our time when it comes to like string theory, he said it's undecidable. He predicted that at one conference where he was debating against some American evangelical dudes, I don't know what they do with their lives, uh, probably theologians or something. He was debating with them. And one of the things that he said was, he said that actually he predicted while Richard Dawkins was on his team, still gunning for man, and hashtag shots fired, uh, Mitchell Hakaku stood on his team, Dawkins must have hated it, he's standing up going, this is pointless, this is undecidable, that actually we could come back here in 100 years. He predicted in 100 years we will be in this same venue talking about this same thing because this is outside the realms of that which can be measured and observed by scientific method because scientific method requires observation. So he said in 100 years we'll still be having this very conversation. And you know what? I agree with them. So 12 years ago, there were 200 parameters that were muted. I reckon it's a lot higher. But just to give you a bit of a, I couldn't say this number if I tried, but the odds, and these are generous odds, not generous from my side, but generous towards, I guess, the side that talks about everything being random. But if it's random, 
anything can happen. But it is a chance of one, and I'm just gonna tell you the number of zeros because I have no idea what this number is. It's one with 36 zeros behind it. One in 36. I don't know which one of you wants to bet your mortgage on that kind of a bet. I mean, that, that puts Conor McGregor's Mayweather fight odds of Conor McGregor calling an upset. That's out of the question. Or if you started a football match and you're 6-0 down on aggregate, you've still got a higher chance of getting through to the next round of the Champions League. You've got a, I've got a higher chance of becoming prime minister than this. I mean, one, I don't know what 36 zeros behind a number is. If anyone here is that good at maths, please let me know. I don't, I mean, I, I mean that's just ridiculous. All of that fine tuning is just for what science calls life. But I'm gonna differ with science on, on this one thing. I'm gonna say all of that fine tuning isn't for life. I'm gonna say all that fine tuning is to exist. That's just to exist. That's what it takes to exist. What I wanna to explore today is I wanna talk about a whole different angle, which is why I feel so often when um, scientists and Christians kind of talk about the same topic, they talk about it very differently because science is talking about the, the biology, the chemistry, and the physics of existence. Whereas often when Christians talk about stuff, they're talking about the, the purpose, they're talking about the reason, the why, the how. And to be honest, scientists generally have no care for why we exist. It's the how that they care about. The why is almost irrelevant. But I wanna talk about what it means to be alive, truly be alive. Because actually what I've noticed throughout my entire life is I've met so many different people of all different stages of life, people who've had so much more than me, people who've been so successful, people who've been so highly educated, people who have had glamorous lifestyles in different settings and different positions and they look like they don't really want for anything and yet I've met people in those circumstances that have been envious of me and I generally don't have any of those things. I don't have any of those things going for me but they've been envious of me when, they, when we've been hanging out and we've been, been chilling because there's something I have that they don't. Because you see, if you spend your whole life just chasing after consumeristic ideals, that if I just get the career path that I want, I'll be whole, I'll be complete. If I just get the right spouse, I'll be complete. If I get the right car, the right house, if I get this or I get that. All of those things, they're not what it means to be alive. And so if you put all your energy solely into that, that when you get those things that you've chased your whole life for, you end up like, what's next? I've met guys who've just achieved it, that have made it, that have got the thing they've always wanted for, and then as soon as they're there, it's empty. Tyson Fury, um, amazing, amazing boxer. I love him just because he's hilariously funny. I remember after one fight, um, he'd, he'd missed his opponent and punched himself in the face, and in the interview, he beat the guy so badly, that in the interview afterwards, they asked him about himself, uppercutting himself in the face, and he said, well, the guy was putting on such a bad show, I felt I had to rough myself up as well for him. Um, Tyson Fury, he became the world champion and then his whole life went through the floor. And the reason his whole life went through the floor was because he'd now achieved the goal that he had. Dad. No. <laughs> Sorry, my dad is completely not getting the subtle hint there. Um, nice one, name. He achieved his life goal. He achieved that which he wanted to do but he was empty, his life was left vacuous, and he ended up with um, all sorts of drug problems, and he couldn't get back in the ring to defend because he'd achieved what he set out to achieve in life, and now he was struggling to figure out what he was gonna do for the rest of his life. And so he's never really fought again afterwards because the whole drive and the whole ambition has been achieved, the idea of a goal after that is beyond him. And I've met a few people that have been like that as well, others who have no goal in the first place, and that also, um, if you lack vision, you perish. 
So what I want to talk about is I want to talk about fine tuning. I want to talk about fine tuning to, to be alive. So I want to talk about what enables us to move past existing and transcend into what it means to be truly alive. There was a conversation that's happened for thousands of years, which has been around this question. And when you and I talk about eternity and we talk about things, we always talk about things in the perspective of heaven and hell. And we talk about an afterlife and all those sorts of things. And the way that we talk about eternity, I mean, that would have to be another series. But we talk about it always in a kind of a medieval kind of angle and, and outtake on things. Was actually the question that was being asked to Jesus and the question that many have asked actually is one slightly different. So we're going to look in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. If you downloaded the app, brap, brap, you've got the same translation. If not, and you're reading from the Yoruba Bible, well, the, the struggle is real. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Straight away, you and I are thinking heaven and hell. We have not thinking this whole medieval conversation. For the Hebrew community, there was this idea of eternity stretching on for longevity of time, but actually also for the quality of life. It wasn't just longevity, it was the quality. Um, because they all knew they, they existed. Biologically, they knew they existed, but they felt there has to be more to life than this. So Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? And then the next question, how do you read it? So within the Hebrew tradition, they had the law of God and the greatest commandment in the law of God was to hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. And then it talked about expressions of how you do this. And it said, hear, O Israel. So it's about hearing. So when Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He's saying, how do you hear it? And the guy knew that because he responds by giving Jesus that particular law, which is known as the Shema in Hebrew culture. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus doesn't say, do this and you'll have eternal life. Because for Jesus, eternal life and life are the same thing because he's never known a different way of life that isn't a life of absolute quality. He didn't just live a life on earth the same as you and I. He's, he's different. He's different, not just in the sense that he's God, but he's not sinful. He's not fallen. He's truly alive. He isn't dying. What you have answered is correctly. Do this and you will live. And then the guy said, but, he said, desiring to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? That's his question. His question is, who, am I who is my neighbor? The question he's asking isn't actually, who is my neighbor? By asking, who is my neighbor? He's saying, who don't I have to love? What type of person can I get by not loving? It's a highly offensive and toxic answer. And so often that's you and I, because you and I love the idea of loving God and loving our neighbor. So you go, yeah, yeah, that's a lovely, nice idea. But when it comes down to it, we all have a name that when we say that name, the pain starts. We have that name that we say of a person who causes such hurt and such pain that sometimes we can't even say their name. So in this instance, Jesus says, do this and you will live. And he says, but who is my neighbor? Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him and departed and left him half dead. Now by chance, the priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him passed by on the other side but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion he went to him bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine and he set him on his own animal brought him to an inn took care of him and the next day he took out two denarii gave it to the innkeeper saying take care of him whatever more you spend I will repay you when, you, when I come back 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So Jesus gives two examples of people in his community who were just getting ratings for being social innovators of their time. Um, they were religious leaders, they were social innovators, they were seen as the people who solved the problems within their communities. And Jesus points out that actually they walk by a man because of who he is and who he is disgust them and they pass by. But then this man, he is the worst kind of person. He is what they would see as being someone of a different race that they do not like. He's a Samaritan, he's, he's dual heritage, he's mixed race. And they don't, they don't want anything to do with this guy because He's, he's everything that they, they personally are against in, who, in his very nature. And Jesus says, who? Who is a neighbor to this man? And then the guy's answer is ridiculous. It is like off the chain. He says this. He says, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Notice Jesus said the whole way through the passage, the Samaritan. This guy's answer is the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the guy's name. He can't even say what he is. He has such hatred in his heart towards this people group, he can't even say it. And you know what? Sometimes in life, someone wrongs you, someone hurts you, and it's like, you just can't even say it. You can't even say it, you can't get it out because they're so abhorrent to you because of what's happened, your history, your scenario, maybe your tribe, your people group, their way of looking at things, our way of looking at another type, a different type of person. But Jesus says what it means to truly be alive is to love your neighbor. And when this guy says, well, who's my neighbor? He's not asking who his neighbor is. He's asking, who don't I have to love? So Jesus takes the person he believes he doesn't have to love and puts him in his face and says, you need to love this guy. You need to do likewise. You need to be this type of a person, one who shows mercy. So Jesus brings up this whole conversation that kind of shocks them and leaves them in this place. But it leaves us with one last question that needs to be answered. And this last question, we're gonna kind of finish around here, is in Lamentations 5. Lamentations is a book where this, the people of Israel have been through such a bad time. They've been so abused, they've been violated, they've been massacred. Um, they, they, are, they are so, there is such famine that mothers have eaten their own children to survive. It's like the most brutal passage in, in Jewish history, probably other than uh, maybe the Nazi concentration camps. It's, it's up there with that. At the end of Lamentations 5, this question gets raised, and the question in this poem is five poems, and it gets raised, can God remember us? Will he remember us? And then towards the end of the passage, it says, um, God, remember us, which means save us. When they ask to be remembered by God, they know if God remembers them, God will definitely um, save them. And so as they're asking this question, remember me in my suffering, remember me, they're asking God to save them. And so in this moment, at the end of Lamentations 5, as this question is raised and this question is answered, it says at the end, but if we're too messed up, if we're too much of a stain, then we get it if all you have for us is just more and more of your judgment upon our lives. And that's how the book ends. It ends with no answer whether they'll be remembered. Hundreds of years later passes. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other rebuked him, saying, do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we are getting justly what we deserve because of the, what we've done? This man has done nothing wrong. And Jesus said to him, he said to Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. All this time, this question has been hanging in the air from Lamentations 5. Will you remember us? We get it. If all there is is just more judgment, and this is all we deserve, and we're forever cut off from God, and we'll never know him again. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. What it truly means to be alive 
is it takes two things. It takes someone brave enough to take ownership of who they are, know who they are, like the thief on the cross next to Jesus, and say, you know what? I'm getting what I deserve, but God, will you remember me? In Lamentations, the people stood up and said, I know who I am. Will you remember me? It's okay, God, if you don't remember me. I'm a hot mess and things are crazy right now. And then we get this answer when Jesus here on the cross. Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise. What it means to be truly alive is to first encounter the salvation and the grace and the love that God lavishes upon our lives. But secondly, what it means to truly be alive here now on earth is to love God with all you are and that to flow out of you into loving your neighbor. And it means loving the person whose name you can't say. And that's hard. And that's not easy. But you know what? It was hard while we were sinners, Christ loved us. And he who knew no sin became sin itself and died in our place. But he took that punishment that we could have life, that we could be alive, as Jesus spoke about being alive. And what it means to truly be alive is to love God. And the only way we can love God is through what Jesus has done for us. And the only way we can love our neighbor is out of the love that God has done for us. You see, people talk about salvation and works and they get it really confused. They say salvation isn't by your works, it's by faith. Salvation is by faith, but you're saved for good works. And that the idea of believing something and not living it or pursuing it and giving outwards and loving those around us is just never going to cut it. It's never going to work. And at City Hill, we want to be committed to being a church that actions out God's love. I'm going to pray for us today and that will be it for part two of our series, um, God of the Universe. Father God, I thank you for your faithfulness towards us. I thank you, Lord, that throughout the whole of the universe attests to the fact that there's all this fine-tuning just for us to exist. But I thank you, Lord, that you want to fine-tune us, that we don't just exist, but we live life and life more abundantly. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be with us, that you'd move through us, and that you would shape us and you would change us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. really hope you enjoyed today's message and if you'd like to find out more about City Hill please visit our website cityhill.london